Last week, we started out with a new series, Going Back to the Basics. The basics, let's look at what God tells us in the Ten Commandments. Are the Ten Commandments good for today? Absolutely. Now, the Bible tells us the Old Testament was given to us as a schoolmaster. You just don't throw the schoolmaster out. Right, Mike? Right. Aren't, yeah, he's paying attention. <laughs> he was distracted. <laughs> Amen. All right, so today we're going to look at the, uh, the next one. But before we do that, how many of you have a pet or pets? Uh, a lot of hands going up here. You know, from the, uh, I should say that we are the only people are the only creatures on the earth that domesticate animals. Now I know that you've seen Planet of the Apes, you know, and the apes domesticated humans, but that's a movie, all right? (laughs) From ancient times when humans first started breeding cattle and sheep, we found more and more ingenious ways to harness animals. And uh, we do it for our own pleasure. We do it for our own comfort. I mean, look, we create zoos, we have circuses. I mean, we have television shows. You know, they, they just show little cuddly puppies on, on one television show. But uh, human domestication of an animal, of the animal world, is really a wonder to behold. But this wonderful ability to, mes- to domesticate loses its wonder when we try to domesticate God. And we do that at times. In many ways, the history of religion is a history of people trying to put, find ways to put God on a leash. To pound in the stake so God will hold in one place. Humans have tried virtually everything to try to create a low-maintenance God, a God who demands little and offers much. So today, as we come to the second commandment, the command against making idols, or as the King James Version says, graven images, here's what Deuteronomy chapter five tells us. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So let's talk first of all, what is an image? What is an image? Any image thought to represent God. That's what we're talking about here. Any image thought to represent God. In the ancient world, Just about every culture used images and idols in their worship. But here God tells us, in this scripture, Israel is not to make 
bow down to or worship any image thought to represent God. Whether it's a bird, a star, a snake, a fish, whatever we might want to conjure up. Says no, don't do it. The Hebrew words image and form in verse eight describes some sort of manufacturing. Whether chiseled from stone, carved from wood, cast in a mold, however we want to do it. There are some who don't see this as a separate commandment from the first commandment. Remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before you. But the second commandment deals with something somewhat different than the first. Because it calls us to break our idea of God out of this puny little box that we contend to put him in. When God gave the first commandment, in one broad sweeping statement, he declared he is the only God. He is the true God. In contrast to all the false gods that were worshiped by various people all over the world. The second commandment really expands on the first commandment. That idols and images shouldn't be worshiped at all. Even when worshiping the one true God, we shouldn't make, bow down to, or worship any images, is what the scripture says. So, in our devotion to God, we need to be image free, idol free. Now the reason given for this commandment is God is a jealous God. Now we immediately kind of look at the word jealousy as not being a very comfortable thought. But uh, in fact, I heard one person say, I could never worship a God who says he's jealous. Well, one Jewish Old Testament scholar translates it this way. He says, I, the Lord, am an impassioned God. It's not the jealousy envy of a stalker that's in view here. It's the zealous passion of a spouse. It's like the zealous passion of a husband, what he feels for his wife, that they've entered into this exclusive relationship Forsaking all others and violation of that sacred bond causes a legitimate, passionate jealousy. Only in this sense is the God of the Bible a jealous God. Now this is a generational thing. As parents, our view of God is the most significant contributor to how our children will view God. Hey, that, that puts a lot of weight on our shoulders, doesn't it? That's why we have up here couples that they have a, a new baby come into the world. And what do we do? We dedicate that child to the Lord, but in the same time, the parents are really committing themselves to giving that child a good view of who God really is. Now this commandment is not condemning religious artwork, okay? I don't want you to think that, oh no, now I can't look at anything religious, I can't put a cross around my neck, I can't, no, no, we're not saying that. After all, in the Bible, God's temple 
it's decorated with many, many colorful and, and um, I was looking for uh, carvings, but uh, I mean, they're, they're really, they were well done carvings. I mean, there were people that were created to do these carvings that they had on, on the uh, temple. The early church used artwork and later stained glass to communicate the great stories of the Bible. I mean, people couldn't read. So they would look at the church windows and, and they would be able to tell the story of, of Jesus holding the lamb. And they could tell the story that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Or the, the nativity scene that's, that's on a, on a, on, made out of glass. So this commandment is c- concerned with our attempts to box God's essence into a physical or even a mental image. So why no images? Aren't images simply aids to worship? Don't they help us reflect on the beauty and the majesty of God? Well, how about we backtrack here to chapter four in Deuteronomy and see what God says about forsaking the making of images. God said, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. Friends, nothing we can develop can capture God's magnificence. Nothing we can develop can capture it. When God revealed to Moses, to Israel, he didn't appear in any form, that's because God's essence is invisible. It's awesome. It's majestic. So even the deepest sea or the tallest mountain can't capture God's magnificence. Making an image of any sort would misrepresent God's invisible nature and cause people to have a distorted view of who God is. God is passionate. And he wants us to know what he is really like. So why does God forbid images? Because no humanly designed image can adequately capture who God is. We worship him because he's God. Not because he looks like God, not because he feels like God, not because we can design something that makes us feel good about God. We worship him because he is God. Images reduce God, diminishing his majesty. Images distort God, twisting his character qualities, which results in an unfaithful reproduction instead of the real thing. Did you ever talk to someone over the phone? You'd never seen them before. Or you might listen to a radio personality. Never seen them before. I, I know that I, I do this, and my wife and I, we've talked about this before. 
we, we kind of picture in our mind what that person looks like, don't we? We hear them and we're making all of our assumptions on the voice that we hear. And I want to tell you right now, I'm batting a thousand percent. I've never got it right. Uh, I look at this person, uh, maybe a, a picture in the paper or the, they, they're shown on TV and, or someone I've talked to and I meet him in person and I'm thinking, this is not the way I pictured this person to be. And I don't say that out loud because then they're going to say, well, how did you picture me to be? <laughs> but don't we do that with God? I mean, we, we try to picture, I just lost my little, uh, my, uh, What's it called? Uh, puffed wheat. <laughs> I'll eat it later, all right? <laughs> so some of you here were raised in homes that just like we, we distort the vision of someone who we think they, we know what they look like or we assume we know what they look like and it's very distorted in our mind, we do the same thing with God. We distort ideas about God. And like the second commandment says, these twisted characters of God were passed on to us many times. Because there are times when you try to pray and you try to worship and those distorted images of who God is will haunt you. Like maybe you were raised in a home that says, God is just up in, he's up there somewhere and he's got a big club and he's gonna hit you if you do something wrong. That's a distorted image of who God is. And there might be less violent images that you have, but they're not correct images. And until you shatter these false images, these are the very images that you'll pass on to your children and to their children and to their children's children. In fact, the scripture says that because of these images, people will start to hate God and it will go on to the third and the fourth generation. All because we try to give a picture of who and what God is. So how do we actually use these images? Image making is trying to box in God. Each of us can be prone to domesticate God with false images. We may be more sophisticated in our image making as postmodern people but we struggle with images nevertheless. Israel gives us a great example of using a tangible idol, a tangible image. I mean, Moses is up on the mountain, he's meeting with God, and he's up there, and the people down below, they're not allowed to touch the mountain, they're not allowed to go up in the mountain, they, they, they can't send a search party to go get Moses, they have no idea where Moses is, they don't know if he's dead or alive, they just know he's up there. So, here's what happens. Aaron says, because they, they want something, they need something, they, the, everything is invisible to them. Aaron says, Bring your gold to me. He says, Aaron took the gold from their hands and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw the molten calf, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
Now the word Lord is Yahweh, the name for God. So they got up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and then the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to play, shamefully without moral restraint. So Aaron only makes one idol, identifies this idol with the God who had brought them out of Egypt. The incident with the golden calf doesn't violate the first commandment. Thou shalt have one God. Just one God, because that's all there is. So it doesn't violate the first commandment, but it violates the second commandment. They tried to worship the right God in the wrong way. The calf was a symbol of power in the ancient day, and Aaron probably thought he was giving God a a service or a compliment when he made this golden calf because it symbolized power. You see, their false worship of the true God started out innocently enough. Look what they did. They had burnt offerings. They had fellowship offerings. They had a ceremonial meal. But by the end of the day, it had become revelry a time of sexual perversion. They lived up to, or down to, I should say, the image of God that he had created. The golden calf represented God on their terms. On their terms. So, image worship is trying to worship God on our own terms. It's a self-willful Worship of the true God. Where instead of bowing our will to God's will, we try to domesticate God to our will. We try to put a leash on him for our agenda. One Christian author said, Israel did not think they had abandoned the God who saved them, but they refashioned God to fit their expectations and to service their desires. They reduced God to a more manageable deity. Friends, we're prone to do this also. We turn, to, turn God into an endorsement for our favorite cause. Or we reshape God into a deity whose only function is to make us happy, healthy, and wealthy. Friends, our God, the God of the Bible, is holy, awesome, and majestic. He's a God who's passionate for us to know who he is accurately. A God who refuses to be leashed and used for our agendas. I mean, think about what God does for us. Our God gives us wonderful freedom in worship. The Bible doesn't tell us whether we should do it traditionally or contemporary whether we should sing soft or loud, whether we should use an electric guitar or a pipe organ. He doesn't say that we are to have communion once a week or once a month. He says as often as you will. He, it doesn't matter to him if we meet in a cathedral or in a basement. The Bible doesn't prescribe these things to us because God wants us to worship him freely and creatively so that we are not creating boundaries for God. (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah. The second commandment says, God doesn't mess 
uh, says we're not to mess with his image. Don't try to put the, his majesty on a leash or to parade him around as an athlete making an endorsement. The true worship of God needs to be on God's terms, not our terms. I remember one time I was with a guy and he was getting his boat motor out. And in getting his boat motor out, he'd been in storage all winter and he was wanting to go fishing that, uh, that weekend. And some neighborhood boys were, were there and <clears throat> he had this motor in a barrel with water in it and he says, guys, he says, God is gonna see to me that I can get this mo- motor started in two poles. Boom, didn't work. Boom, didn't work again. I mean, he pulled and pulled and pulled. Three days later after he tore the boat motor apart and fixed what needed to be fixed, the boat motor finally started. Why wouldn't it start? Because he unleashed God into what he wanted God to do into what he expected. We can expect God to get our boat motor started, but we don't have to put him in a box saying this is what God's good for. No, no. True God wants us to worship him on his terms. That we begin to realize that the idolatry that may have been hatched within our own hearts, the ways We've tried to use God, manipulate him and manage him, maneuvering and jockeying him for our own agenda will turn to real worship and real God honoring. Yeah, we can make our own golden calves, friends. They might not look like gold. They might not look like a cow. But see, when we worship God in a self-willful way, whenever we try to use God, He says, I'm not going to have any part of that. You shall have no image like that before you. You shall have no idol that represents me before you. So, how can we know what God looks like? How can we know what God is like? How can we get a picture of who he really is? Well, for the Old Testament believer, this is where the story ends. It doesn't go any further than this. There is one God, and you shall have no graven image before you. But for the New Testament believer, this is where Jesus comes into the picture, friends. This is where the infinite God comes together with the finite creation. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, I mean, in Colossians. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God, the firstborn over all creation. God himself provided an image of himself. God forbids us to make images because we will inevitably distort his nature. But God himself took on human flesh in Jesus God himself provided the only image that makes him known accurately. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human, the only image of the invisible God. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. The sun is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on, in heaven. Look what it says. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. So how can we know anything about God? God himself revealed a perfect image of himself through the son, Jesus. So the bottom line of the second commandment is God is passionate about us worshiping him accurately and on his terms. God is passionate to the point of jealousy that we worship him, not some secondhand image handed down to us, not an idol constructed by some theologian, not an image concocted by our imagination. God wants us to know him and that's why he sent Jesus. <laughs> we can't put God on a leash. We can't use him to endorse our favorite cause. He won't be our genie in the bottle. He's not gonna stand for us to, to rub it for all our wishes to come true. In fact, worshiping the God of the universe who revealed himself fully through his son Jesus can be risky. It can be risky. Are you ready to take the risk? That's the question. We risk being changed every time we encounter this God in worship. Every time we stand and worship, sit and worship, however you want to do it. Every time we lift our voice and lift our thoughts and our hands of surrender, we are saying, God, I want you to change me. I want you to, I want to be more like you. I don't want you to become more like me. I've tried that too long. I want you to become the God or be the God you are so I can become more like you. Friends, when we do that, we will feel the presence of his love and we'll enter into a relationship with him like we've never known before. Because even though he is majestic and awesome and infinite and incomprehensible, he loves us. And he offers this relationship with him and it all comes through Jesus. Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? Anymore I hear people referring to the heavenly being is God. Do you know God? God did this and God did that. And, and for some reason, we're not using the name Jesus. But it's through Jesus that we have this relationship with our heavenly father. It's through Jesus that we will go to the throne room in heaven one day. 
It's through Jesus that we can get the image of who God is. And any other image we might have in our mind, we can replace with the image of Jesus. And I'm not talking about a picture you saw hanging in a church somewhere or in your living room, wherever it might be. I'm talking about the Jesus who saved your soul. The Jesus who loved you so much that he went to Golgotha. He hung on the cross. And as he's hanging on the cross, there are stripes on his back because he wanted you to receive a healing. The Jesus who hung on the cross and he cried out to heaven, who darkened the skies. It is finished. It is finished. Friends, that's the God who we want a relationship with. That's the God. That's having no graven image before him. Nothing we ourselves have conjured up. That's saying, God, I'm opening the box that I've had you in for years. And I'm, I don't have to let you out because you were never in there. This was just in my thinking. I'm opening that box and I'm going to tear the seams and I'm going to fold it up and I'm going to get rid of it so I can have a relationship with you because I know you want to have a relationship with me. He loves you. This, this is a great song to sing because he loves you. He loves you. If you need to come to the altar this morning, you come. I don't know how God's dealing with you. The altars are open. Chris is going to start this song for us.